Hello, this is Hovik Manucharyan, and you're listening to Anan Grung's July 26, 2020 edition of Week in Review. This week, Armenian news continued to be dominated by the fighting on the Tabush border and its aftermath, including violence between Armenian and Azeri demonstrators worldwide as they protested to support their respective points of view. Coincidentally, several weeks ago, Armenia updated its national security strategy document, so it's a good time to review it with input from two special guests to the show. This week, we saw the fighting in the border between Armenia and Azerbaijan simmer down and take a backseat to the political statements flowing in from around the world. In general, except for Turkey and a few other countries, we've seen balanced statements from major countries and organizations such as the US, the EU, the UN, Russia, and the CSTO. Major journalists such as David Ignatius called on the US and Russia to seize this moment as a rare opportunity to collaborate toward peace in the Caucasus. We discussed the state of affairs since the cessation of fighting and what the replacement of Azerbaijan's longtime foreign minister portends for the future of negotiations with Armenia. Also, the drone wars, and what that means for the future of warfare in the region. Joining us today are Emil Sanamyan, who is a senior research fellow at USC's Institute of Armenian Studies, specializing in politics in the Caucasus with a special focus on Azerbaijan. He is a regular contributor to ANN Grung. Karen Vertanesian, editor of Razm.info, a specialty website on military and warfare strategies with a focus on Armenia and its neighboring region. And Aspet Kochikian, Professor of Political Science and International Relations at Bentley University in Massachusetts. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Emil, how do you assess these latest events and current cessation of fighting? What does the replacement of Azerbaijan's longtime foreign minister portend for the future? And what do you think Bayramov will be tasked with to achieve in the near term? Uh, hello again. Uh, in terms of the current hiatus, uh, certainly uh, there is some um, um, rebuilding is happening as far as uh, both uh, the foreign ministry and the military capacity in Azerbaijan. Uh, we knew from earlier this year that Azerbaijan was going to add on to its existing capacity in terms of bringing in uh, Turkish, uh, 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 at least a squadron of Turkish uh, uh, UAVs, unmanned aerial vehicles, the ones that uh, were used in Syria uh, to add it to its existing capacity of mostly Israeli UAVs. Uh, so I think this experience uh, of recent fighting will, has accelerated that process. We had the delegation uh, and uh, Razminfo covered it extensively. Uh, delegation from Azerbaijan went to Turkey on uh, as fighting was still ongoing in, uh, in Tavush. And uh, there's been reports of uh, Turkish transportation planes uh, landing in Baku, perhaps bringing, uh, already bringing the, the UAVs. But of course, it takes time to uh, be able to deploy them unless Turks or Turkish government is ready, is ready to lend Azerbaijan uh, their own pilots uh, who, you know, operate the UAVs and sort of, uh, you know, integrate them into the Azerbaijani command. Uh, that's not, uh, I wouldn't rule that possibility out, that's possible, but more likely they're going to train Azerbaijani side, and we heard that from Ismail Demir, the head of the Turkish uh, uh, defense industries, that they're going to be training Azerbaijani personnel, uh, not just on uh, new uh, uh, UAVs that they'll be supplying, but also on some of the other uh, other things. I think uh, one thing that we uh, saw uh, in this fighting between July 12 and, um, you know, the, the extensive fighting was between July 12 and July 14, is that Azerbaijan was not ready for fighting in that particular area, uh, in uh, Tovuz, uh, Tavush area. Uh, 
you know, uh, the, of course, the, they have been building up this fleet uh, of uh, UAVs for some time. I mean, we knew uh, from 2016 that they already had some capacity and they've been expanding that capacity in the last couple of years, several years. Um, but I think, of course, the preparation was on their part done primarily in, uh, in the Artsakh uh, theater. So preparation means uh, building up a target list of fixed targets that would be attacked and also, uh, you know, looking for moving targets to be attacked. Uh, in this case, of course, they did manage to attack some targets in Tavush, but uh, at least by what they've uh, published, we could also see them attack very uh, sort of uh, random targets like just regular cars and, uh, you know, regular buildings and, uh, you know, expanding their uh, UAVs, drones and also missiles uh, on on things that may not be of, uh, of the, the value that would, you know, normally this UAVs target. Um, so they will be working to update their target lists, uh, also in Tobosh area and maybe other areas. And uh, because, of course, uh, you have to uh, constantly upgrade those target lists and, of course, to integrate the new capacity into, into their uh, war planning. As far as the foreign ministry, you know, uh, I think it's, uh, you know, the, there's probably going to be some rebuilding in, inside the foreign ministry. But the foreign ministry of Azerbaijan is a very peculiar agency. Uh, you have uh, foreign ministers that uh, sort of change, uh, have changed, even though the current, the, the, the latest one had changed after more than 16 years. Uh, but at least you have changes, but you have some deputy foreign ministers in Azerbaijan that have been in office since the early 90s. You know, I'm thinking of Araz Azimov, for example. And then you have other deputy foreign ministers who are relatives of Ilham Aliyev. Either one is a, one is a cousin, the other one uh, is a former husband of his sister, a uh, third one is another cousin, and the fourth one is the uh, uh, uncle of Mehriban Aliyev. So uh, it's unlikely that the new minister will be replacing any of those deputy foreign ministers or like bringing his own team. So it's sort of a figurehead appointment. Um, for now, it means that Azerbaijan does not really have a very, uh, uh, you know, serious kind of face as far as the foreign minister. And sort of de facto foreign minister is uh, currently Hikmet Hajiev, who is the assistant to, uh, uh, to Ilham Aliyev and former spokesman of the foreign ministry. So... There'll there'll be some I think disarray happening there. I don't see uh, you know immediate sort of change because I think this appointment uh, and, and generally this appointments by Ilham Aliyev uh, appointing somebody from kind of uh, somebody unexpected has been his uh, hallmark. Uh, he's done that with other appointments, uh, but especially this one. I don't think anybody really knew that he was going to appoint this particular person. I think his, that's his way of showing that he's in charge. He decides who becomes the foreign minister. He's not even going to consult anybody on that. So, so he picked this particular person that had not prior experience beyond uh, some tangential experience as a lawyer and a uh, member of uh, U.S. Azerbaijani Chamber of Commerce, and you know, obviously he speaks English, etc. So. Uh, and his uh, his primary uh, connection to the ruling family is through Mikhail Jabarov, uh, who is the uh, sort of super economics minister, and before that was uh, tax minister, and before that was education minister. So he's been everywhere, and he's uh, believed to be a close friend of uh, Ilham Aliyev's children, Leila Aliyev, Arzu Aliyev, and also Mehriban Aliyev. And uh, he, this particular person is a childhood friend. Jehun Bayramov is a childhood friend of Mikhail Jabarov, and that's how he ended up first 
coming into the education ministry as uh, Mikhail Jabaro's deputy and then succeeding him as the education minister and now moving on to the foreign ministry. Uh, but like I said, that uh, it seems to me that there is going to be quite a bit of uh, disarray in, in that apparatus, as there has been over the years, uh, in terms of sort of, you know, maybe re- re- reappointing new ambassadors, especially in the light of what Ilham Aliyev said about some ambassadors being traitors and whatnot. So that's the that's general picture. Um, I would like to add uh, that um, yesterday's declaration by uh, OSCE Ms. Group co-chairs, uh, there is very interesting wording in the end of the text. It says that co-chairs are prepared to meet with the leaders or the designees at any time. Um, what that word designee may mean, probably it's uh, about Hikmet Hajiev replacing uh, the foreign minister during the negotiations. I don't know, that's just a guess, but it may be so. What do you make of the current relative peace and the political maneuvering since the cessation of hostilities in general? Um, First of all, um, I always mention that uh, given the development of military infrastructure, uh, both in Armenia and Azerbaijan, even even a period of longer peace uh, can uh, can become a full-scale war just in the matter of a matter of hours, maybe days. It's very easy to go to a full-scale war uh, without any visible preparation, just in the matter of hours. So um, when I uh, lots of people are asking, like, how long is going to uh, the, this? Uh, peaceful period last. Um, there, there is no definite answer now. Uh, I can I can say that uh, Ilham, there was a strong blow to uh, internal reputation of Ilham Aliyev and Azerbaijani generals uh, because of his uh, Tavush fightings. Uh, and I'm sure they are going to try uh, to take some revenge at least something that can be show, shown to their population as a successful case of revenge. Uh, let's remember what happened in 2014 when uh, there was a sabotage wars, uh, war in August 2014, uh, which ended up uh, by uh, Azerbaijanis uh, having um, much heavier casualties. Uh, but in uh, like two, three months, uh, they hit uh, Armenian uh, military helicopter, if you remember. Uh, so um, I think they will try to to have some counter blows, to arrange some counter blows. When it is very hard to tell, really. Uh, the second question was. Yeah, I think uh, the second question was related. What do you think about the political maneuvering of both sides in the aftermath of the? Uh, uh, hostilities. Oh, okay. Um, I think that the case, uh, these uh, skirmishes, uh, which escalated into uh, larger fighting, uh, th- this wasn't anything unusual, this wasn't anything extraordinary. Something like this uh, ha- happened like once or twice a year, maybe once in two years. Uh, and it wasn't a big deal this time. And Azerbaijanis usually, if uh, 
the fight doesn't go the, the way they, they want. They try not to uh, talk about it much. They try not to, you know, popularize it. This time they uh, decided to go international and it was um, presented to international community as if it was something on a scale of World War. Um, probably they were trying to check reactions of international community. Probably this uh, probably was something um, which Russian would call Razvet Kaboem, like uh, doing their reconnaissance with, with the fight. Um, reconnaissance in force. And, sorry? Reconnaissance in force. Reconnaissance in force, yeah. So, um, Probably it was an operation like this. They decided to check uh, what would be the reaction, international reaction, uh, especially uh, after the, with uh, new authorities in Armenia, especially in the COVID-19 situation in the world. Uh, so probably they were uh, checking the waters now. Uh, Actually, uh, they also brought the conflict to, to international uh, level, uh, instigating fights between Armenian and Azerbaijani communities worldwide. Uh, first of all, in Russia, especially in Moscow, but in other countries too. Uh, Azerbaijan has been building a network of, I wouldn't call it just communities, because it also heavily relies on criminal elements, it heavily relies on a, in Russia, at least in Russia. Uh, yeah, okay. Yes, that, that was part of their politics too. So, uh, yeah, so uh, I guess, uh, I guess they were uh, doing a reconnaissance in a reconnaissance in new situation, new world situation and new situation in Armenia. Okay. Emil, uh, by our reports, Armenia scored acceptable results in the fighting, but you tweeted your disappointment at the dead drone display this week by the Armenian Defense Forces. Uh, what was all that about? Uh, well, uh, of course, uh, every time there is uh, fighting, uh, we have to uh, kind of uh, uh, carefully um, examine the official claims and what is a realistic uh, outcome. Uh, what has been the trend uh, is that uh, Armenian side, when it talks about its own casualties, it's uh, fairly honest, especially human casualties. Uh, but when it comes to uh, Azerbaijani casualties, uh, there is a lot of exaggeration happening. Uh, this happened in uh, April 2016, happened in other incidents, and it happened this time around as well. Uh, and it's partly it's a natural outcome because... Uh, these claims are based on uh, field reporting. So if you, for example, if you are a machine gunner uh, and, uh, you know, you're shooting at the enemy and the enemy falls down, your uh, perception is that you hit him or, uh, you know, at least uh, injured him, but most likely killed him. So that's how it's reported to uh, commanders and that's how commanders pass that on to their commanders and that's how it comes out of the press spokesman. Uh, so especially with this UAVs, there is a lot of confusion. What's been shut down? Uh, what's uh, been uh, damaged uh, but did not, did not fall down? What 
you know what was the what was uh, what fell down as a result of a technical failure and uh, what fell down as a result of some kind of electronic warfare so uh, it's normal that there would be confusion so uh, armenian defense ministry uh, came out and said that they believe uh, they had shot down or brought down 13 uavs uh, operated by azerbaijan so far i have seen evidence of one uav uh, that they captured uh, so that's uh, you know that sky striker uh, uh, drone uh, that either was brought down by electronic warfare or suffered a technical failure and parachuted down there's been several pictures maybe there's more than one sky striker drone perhaps um, what uh, that particular tweet was about is that uh, defense uh, ministry's press secretary Shushan Stepanyan captioned uh, that display that was there as here's what we have acquired in the last fighting uh, in uh, in Tavush whereas most of the things that were displayed there were from before that fighting in Tavush and actually one item was from 2011 uh, and still unclear if it was uh, Azerbaijani or perhaps Israeli drone that Israelis operated at the time in Azerbaijan so uh, that was my tweet, uh, and uh, I thought uh, it was uh, uh, great that it was picked up and uh, you know turned into big news in Azerbaijan in that Hakin Az uh, website that is sort of uh, their main Russian language uh, propaganda site, uh, and I thought that was great because uh, they uh, really they were looking for a way to kind of uh, soften the blow. Uh, the, I mean, the biggest blow, of course, in this fighting was the death of their general and some of the other officers. Basically, a substantial portion of the core command, right, the third core command. Uh, and uh, you know, when, when they, especially when they have an Armenian name uh, criticizing Armenian defense ministry, that's a big deal for them. Um, so, yeah. Emil, do you think that the numbers were then exaggerated uh, by the I believe ministry? so. They're always exaggerated. They're always exaggerated, and they're exaggerated naturally. because uh, So the claim is 13, uh, and uh, the evidence is of one um, actual evidence. There are some parts that may have been you know, legitimately shut down with uh, some kind of a ground fire. And of course, it's hard to, those remains that they put up uh, in addition to uh, the older, uh, older aircraft, uh, older UAVs that were previously captured. Uh, so, but we cannot know for sure whether uh, they were actually shut down or they actually detonated on impact. Uh, you know, those strike, strike UAVs, uh, they are used to be, uh, their, their purpose is to blow up, right? So if they detonated on impact, then, you know, you can claim that you shot it down, but, I mean, it's uh, it, it's not true. <laughs> it, it actually up, acted on impact. And then there were also claims that, uh, you know, some of these parts that, uh, that they claimed were parts of UAVs, as uh, Karen's uh, website, actually, Rasminfo, confirmed they were not even UAVs, they were missile parts. Uh, parts of missiles that Azerbaijan fired at the long distance at some of the Armenian targets. And uh, I reviewed their videos that they published on their uh, YouTube page. Uh, they fired at least eight of those missiles. They're called spike and loss missiles, uh, which are uh, probably the most expensive uh, weapon, individual missile that Azerbaijan has its, in its uh, uh, 
inventory, I mean, in addition to maybe LoRa missiles and some of the others that they have used so far. Uh, and, uh, you know, they've used some of them, uh, hit some targets. Some of them, like I said, they hit some cars and things like that that made no sense that they would hit a car with a missile like that, right? Yeah. Like an yeah. emergency vehicle. So, but, I mean, there is also that, uh, there is also questions about uh, Armenian uh, military's ability to analyze this information because uh, we've heard uh, early on uh, by uh, spokesman for the defense ministry Artsur Novanisyan that uh, Armenian units that Azerbaijani side used Grad uh, missile launchers um, because I think they, they said that because there were some targets hit more than 10 kilometers away from the front line and normally when it's more than 10 kilometers it would be a Grad fire or some other uh, missile launcher like that but in this case they used uh, precision uh, missiles to target uh, those targets more than 10 kilometers from the front line and most likely they used it used them off the helicopters and the Armenian side was not able to detect those launches so that's a, that's a yeah. major issue that the Armenian government will Armenian military would have to deal with forthwith um, because it's of course it's a standoff weapon meaning that it can the helicopters can launch those weapons while they're outside of uh, mm -hmm. Uh, regular air defense uh, from the Armenian side. Yes, yes. I have a question for Karen actually on this. Um, so it seems that drones are going to have a permanent role in the future of warfare in the Caucasus. What are the, the what are what are the trends here for Armenia, both militarily as well as uh, military technology? Uh, first of all, not only. UAVs, but also precision munitions like the endless uh, missiles that uh, Emily mentioned. Uh, the trends are, are the same as in the whole world. That uh, we we need uh, we need more uh, UAVs, uh, and it would be better if Armenia starts to produce its own at least uh, whatever is possible, not uh, probably something fancy like American Reapers, for example, but at least for uh, at least like smaller uh, UAVs can be produced and are produced yeah, in Armenia. So there were some reports that we did use Armenia produced UAVs. Um, yes. How pervasive do you think that was and what you know type of uavs do, do we use today that uh, i wouldn't comment on this because uh, first of all i don't have information and uh, there was uh, there there were no reports in open sources that i could cite um, it is said so that uh, armenia uavs were used to conduct the operation to, to hit that Azerbaijan general. Uh, but I'm not, I, I, I have, I don't have exact information on this. Um, in any case, uh, this is the face of the modern war. And if you, uh, if you are late for, uh, for, for this, you are going to lose. Azerbaijan is uh, investing a lot into precise munitions, including drones, 
so we have no choice but to go on with our own and also anti and also trying to develop anti anti drone measures. I mean, this is where the warfare is heading now, anywhere in the world. So we we can't stay. Uh, we, we can't just stand and look at it from the distance. Aspet Kochikian. Anything you want to add on drone drone warfare or anything else you've heard so far? Uh, yeah, I mean, both Emil and Karen covered it very well in terms of the aftermath of the war. Uh, one thing I want to add is about, as Karen uh, rightfully pointed out, the future of warfare being drones is quite interesting. I recently was reading an edited volume uh, titled uh, One Nation Under Drone, uh, the legality, the legal aspect, the moral aspect, and the utility of uh, unmanned drones and so on. And it's quite interesting to see that it's not just one kind of an unmanned vehicle. You know, you can end up having um, targeted, pre-targeted uh, drones, low intensity or low cost drones. And like a swarm of bees, you can unleash it on a target. This is what the Houthi, Yemeni Houthi rebels did in 2019, September 2019, uh, when they attacked uh, oil installations. So it's quite interesting to see as to uh, an evolving, uh, an evolving warfare, new technology, but in action as well. You know, it's all new game. It's all new. It can be very maneuverable drones, but it can also be low, uh, sort of low tech, uh, pre-targeted targets, pre-acquired targets. You just release those drones. Of course, it all assumes that you have money. Uh, you need to have money to build those, and you can sustain that. Uh, but that's uh, that's what I only wanted to add. Uh, also, I want to add uh, another interesting detail. It's a, it can be considered a weak signal now, but uh, there has uh, there was an attack on Armenian electricity network website uh, by Azerbaijani hackers. Successful attack. Uh, um, of course, they uh, didn't get into the control uh, system itself through that website. And they were able to um, hack some databases, get some uh, personal information, etc. Uh, but that's probably going to be another dimension of the future possible war between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, attacks, uh, hackers' attacks on infrastructure. Uh, can I ask? Can I follow up on that with Karen on the infrastructure? Uh, in uh, actually last summer. Uh, there was a major electricity outage in Azerbaijan, remember? Um, uh, with the Mingichaur uh, hydropower station yeah. uh, having a fire and whatnot, mm -hmm. and they were out in Baku, and uh, uh, the uh, the skyscrapers lit up in the Armenian colors, you know. Um, yeah. uh, the, then, I think a year before that, in 2018, in the summer, there was a major outage in Armenia as well. Yes. Uh, and uh, after that, somehow were, related with Iran, I remember. Uh, yeah, I think there was a like KGB or the what an uh, uh, the National Security Service was uh, put in charge of the investigation. I don't remember any outcome of that investigation. Was there any sense that uh, the those events were connected, or if there is any kind of uh, uh, you know warfare happening of that? I mean, now obviously you're saying that there is evidence that they've uh, hacked into. Um, the uh, databases, but in, uh, the, is there an effort to uh, get into controls and try to cause damage that way? Um, I haven't heard about any outcomes from an, an assessing investigation. Uh, 
but it, it was some unclear press release uh, which uh, really said nothing about the results. Uh, but there was lots of conspirologist thinking at that time that it may be a, a cyber attack, uh, a result of cyber attack that, uh, that damage. Um, actually, even if it wasn't the events that you described, uh, we have to expect that. I mean, it's inevitable. Uh, this is where the the warfare technology is heading and it's going to happen sooner or later, something like this. Okay. As the border war quieted down, clashes have broken out in cities around the world between Armenian diaspora communities protesting against Azeri aggression and Azeri or Azerbaijan-supported protesters. In cities like Los Angeles, Chicago, Moscow, Kiev, London, just to name a few, violence broke out between angry demonstrators. In Los Angeles, an Armenian school was vandalized with hate graffiti. In Berlin, in Berlin, a car belonging to the Armenian embassy was set on fire. Garen, we have not seen this sort of follow-up to skirmishes in the past. What is driving this violence by Azeri supporters in cities around the globe? Uh, there were some uh, tensions, for example, after the April war. Uh, but uh, in Russia, I remember, they were... Uh, very quickly rounded up by Russian police. This time, for some reason, it uh, took longer time for them to interfere. Uh, and uh, I think it's obvious that uh, at least what happens in Russia, but probably what happens everywhere, is uh, directed right from Azerbaijan. Uh, in Russia, Azerbaijan, uh, for, for the last two or three years, uh, Azerbaijan uh, has uh, set groups of young people uh, based on local communities uh, who, um, um, who are, well, the logic of the organizations is like of skinhead, probably, organization or any other street gang. Uh, they are, uh, they, for example, uh, follow people, uh, they find people who they say uh, are uh, insulting Azerbaijanis on social networks, they beat them, they uh, threaten them, make them to uh, apologize on videos, uh, and then they post that online, etc., etc. This is something that is not unusual for Russia, for example, some North Caucasian uh, communities do that, uh, and, but uh, Azerbaijan uh, did this uh, most probably on government le level. It was uh, sponsored, it was uh, coordinated uh, by Azerbaijani government. Uh, it's, it's actually a tool, a uh, political tool that they are trying to use. Uh, the second thing, they have uh, Azerbaijan Baku, official Baku have uh, supported some um, uh, some Azerbaijani ethnic ethnically Azerbaijani criminals um, in uh, post-Soviet on post-Soviet territory in Eastern Europe in Turkey, uh, and that can be another uh, another unofficial tool that they may uh, want to use. Um, uh, to Excuse conduct me, their I, politics. Yeah, and and, and it, an example of that probably 
is uh, you, you remember Israeli blogger Lapshin who was kidnapped and sent to Baku a couple of several years ago. Uh, 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 and uh, after he was he was he was left free uh, let free, um, and he went to the European Court of Human Rights. He got lots of uh, threats from Azerbaijan, and as he tells. Uh, in Latvia or Lithuania, uh, he was informed that some criminals, local criminals, Azerbaijani criminals, are after him. So he had to flee the country. Interesting. Emil, uh, what do you have to add to that? And should we in the diaspora be prepared from now on to, for violence erupting in our communities when this type of fighting occurs? Well, I mean, in this case, we have to acknowledge that uh, we were uh, we saw on video that uh, Armenians attacked uh, first uh, in uh, Los Angeles. We saw that also in uh, Belgium, uh, where you know groups of Armenians attacked uh, either smaller groups of Azerbaijanis or individual Azerbaijanis. And of course, that after those videos went out, uh, there was a. Uh, 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 and you know, I, I don't know if we want to call it natural or what, but a reaction by Azerbaijani side, and uh, having that uh, capability that Karen described, both in terms of the organized crime capability and also sort of uh, semi-organized crime, sort of uh, protection racket capability in Russia, because you know the, there's a a lot of uh, first of all, there's a big Azerbaijani community in Russia, a big trade Azerbaijani community in Russia, uh, that uh, you know. Uh, is uh, once in a while comes under uh, different types of pressures, either from official agencies, police, or the KGB, or uh, from uh, ethnic Russian nationalist groups. So they, they're prepared to kind of do uh, fighting with either, uh, mostly with Russian organized crime. Um, in this case, it that, that those groups may have been directed to sort of for the retaliatory attacks on Armenians. Uh, but we have to acknowledge that uh, you know, uh, those first attacks happened in Los Angeles and in, in, in Belgium. There was also some scuffles in the London protests, but nothing like what it was in Los Angeles. Uh, so if that is the case, we have to kind of uh, come out and say that organizations that organized the protest at the Azerbaijani consulate in Los Angeles uh, weren't able to control uh, uh, I mean, it's hard to control large groups of people, and uh, I have not seen them come out and say, you know, that they need to make amends uh, of some kind for this. So when you don't have leadership at the community level, and you don't have uh, really, you don't really have leadership at the community level of Azerbaijani community uh, here in U.S., it's mostly coordinated out of the diplomatic uh, organizations, out of the consulate, uh, you know, through uh, networks of either you know, family members of diplomats or through students who get government stipends to study in U.S. or, you know, some other connections. Uh, when you don't have those sort of community-level authority to come together, say, I don't know, leader of our Azerbaijani community in the United States, there's not, I don't know of such a person uh, that, you know, that I could sort of reach out to beyond sort of uh, lobbyists uh, that work for Azerbaijan. Uh, and uh, somebody at the Armenian level, where you do have some organized Armenian community to come out and make a joint call for cessation of hostilities and for normal behavior uh, in the streets, uh, you will probably have a recurrence of this kind of events. Uh, and uh, from okay. now on, uh, of course, the, uh, the police and uh, FBI 
uh, will be on the lookout for any kind of street protests that Armenians try to organize or uh, Azerbaijanis try to organize and sort of be, uh, you know, more reluctant to let them proceed or when they proceed will, you know, proceed under greater police scrutiny. Okay. Asped, Hochikian, any closing thoughts? Thoughts? Yeah, uh, one of the first things that came to my mind when I was looking at the uh, the level of Azerbaijani protesters uh, around the world is a conversation I had about five, six years ago in Baku uh, with several young individuals as well as officials in the uh, dip- diplomatic academy. And one of the things they said uh, is that they were sending students to the, to the West to get educated. And even if half of them uh, return or less than half of them return, the other ones, the remaining ones, would become the foundation of an, a new Azerbaijani uh, community or a new Azerbaijani diaspora. And I, I couldn't but kept thinking about, the, the, keep thinking about this, and probably as we're seeing maybe the possibility of a rising new uh, organized, be that not community, but even by the consulate, as Emil pointed out, uh, Azerbaijani sort of community, diaspora and community, uh, and also, let's not forget, uh, we talked about this last week, about the reaction, international reaction uh, by uh, pro-Azerbaijani statements, how they had already lined up. Uh, Aspet Bedrosia mentioned this, that they were already lined up, and the moment the target or the, the war started, they had all these statements coming out. And it seems that these uh, protests were also, uh, in a way, in the back on the back burner. Yeah. Maybe they had a contingency plan, <clears throat> and they would just, you know, when the time comes in and say, this is it. Okay. Well, there's so much to talk about, but for now, we'll have to leave it here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Armenia Security Council introduced a new national security strategy on July 10, 2020. The previous strategy document was adopted in 2007, in the final year of Second President Robert Kocharyan's final term in office. Last week, we had a conversation with Dr. Karina Avedisian on this topic. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, my name is Aspet Kochikian, and today I have uh, my conversation partner uh, is Karina Avedisian. Uh, Professor Avedisian uh, teaches uh, Russian and Caucasus politics, uh, as well as issues of democratization, and she has uh, extensive uh, experience also working in security issues. Um, so today's discussion will cover a couple of uh, key points, and uh, welcome, Karina, by the way. Thank you so much. Uh, you, you, it's always glad to have uh, to have uh, people uh, knowledgeable information and uh, analysis. Um, so today, uh, I want to talk about briefly. Uh, I want us to discuss briefly about the latest national security doctrine that was issued uh, right before uh, the latest border flare-up, the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. This was uh, a major upgrade since 2007, uh, so 13 years have passed, and there have been a lot of changes in Armenia regionally, internationally as well. So what is your first take once when you read the two, uh, the two documents, the old one and the new one? What are some of the things that stand out? Yeah, um, one of the things that stands out is that in the new national security doctrine, you have the uh, fact that, you know, democracy, human rights and rule of law are specifically named as key elements of effective governance in Armenia and um, key for Armenia's internal stability. Um, So within that context, you know, obviously, you know, talking about a post-revolutionary Armenia, you know, we're, we're, we're not talking about the same Armenia anymore. Um, after this this uh, new national security um, doctrine. And, um, you know, this isn't the Armenia also of the four-day war anymore. 
um, Armenia has internal legitimacy now. It doesn't suffer from a democratic deficit like Azerbaijan does. Um, and, you know, I, I find it interesting that, you know, one of the results of, of this fact is that you don't see Armenia doing things like, for example, Azerbaijan hosting mega events, right? Like um, Eurovision or Formula One. Mm-hmm. Um, those those kinds of things are placing PRPs in Western publications, right? Those things start to become sort of an articulation of success when other sources of legitimacy are not um, there, when they're not there. And Armenia really doesn't need to do that. So we're, we're dealing with a, a different scenario in which we have a clearly, you know, um, authoritarian um, autocratic government on one side and another sort of, you know, democratic one. Um, so the, the dynamics have completely changed. And I think the new national doctrine also um, reflects that. And I think, interestingly, with this new scenario, um, this more democratic context that we're talking about, it's interesting that Armenia's kind of become more hawkish, um, particularly mm-hmm. under the current Minister of Defense, David Tonoyan. Um, and this is kind of, you know, where, where I talk about the you know, Tonoyan Doctrine, which is um, essentially um, a key aspect of that national security doctrine. But it's, it's, this new, it's kind of a new, giving it a new personality. So we're essentially in this last flare up. Um, we've been watching the Tonoyan Doctrine in action. Um, um, sorry to interrupt, Karina, but when you mentioned that it has become more hawkish, uh, I mean, is it, what is the source of this hawkish? Is it? Um, it, does it come from uh, being from in a position of more comfort? Let's say the idea of being more quote unquote legitimate at home, so that gives them uh, more free reign internationally or regionally. I think it's um, a little more simple than that. I think um, Donoyan is very aware of the regional security environment and the fact that, especially over the last couple of years. Um, there's been increasing clashes on Armenia's international borders, as we've seen in Nakhichevan and obviously most recently in Tabush. Um, and it's this it's this regional security environment in which Donoyan has been seen to, for example, last year when I think he was visiting the U.S., he kind of you know explicitly rejected the territorial concessions framework as as something to be worked with. And it seemed that over the years that that idea was starting to kind of lose its relevance. Um, but this was the first time that you had a, such a high-ranking official kind of explicitly say that that's not what we're doing anymore. And what is the Tonoyan doctrine? Uh, could you sum it up, you know, in a in, in couple of sentences? Yeah, so um, I want to give credit, I think, to the at least the person I think who came up with the term. I didn't come up with it. I didn't coin it. Um, it's a young uh, scholar, Edward Abrahamian, who I think is doing his PhD in the UK. Um, and I think he came up with it. So it basically describes a more aggressive approach to military security. Um, it's one that moves Armenia from the old doctrine of this sort of static defense towards um, sort of active deterrence footing. And and it mm-hmm. seems to be working uh, from a military tactical standpoint. Um, so under this doctrine, we've seen Armenia boost its military capabilities, its assault capabilities, actually. Um, so within the doctrine, essentially, it's that, you know, to, in, in a nutshell, if you make war, we will take territory. That's one of the key mm-hmm. elements of, of the doctrine. Um, so, you know, if if there is military action from Azerbaijan's side, Armenian armed forces will essentially carry out a counteroffensive um, and take more territory, um, as opposed to that static trench defense that we, we had been seeing before. Now, uh, 
I mean, uh, uh, David Tonoyan has actually been in the Ministry of Defense. He was Deputy Def Minister of Defense for many, many years. Um, do you have any evidence or do you know of any evidence that uh, this is something that is very much person-based, individual-based, meaning this is his worldview, and at some point it wasn't included in the larger doctrine uh, back, back in the 2000-2017? Uh, and now that he's the defense minister, he's been able to actually give it wings and implement. Yeah, um, I know that he first floated the idea in 2016 for when he was still deputy minister of defense. And I know that the doctrine has gone through several transformations since then. Um, mm -hmm. I'm obviously not privy to, you know, who might have been shaping the doctrine further. But um, it seems to me from what I know to be a bit of a personal project. But what's interesting mm. is that the doctrine um, also coincides with this unprecedented cooperation that we've been seeing between the Ministry of Defense, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and the Ministry of High-Tech Industry, which uh, alongside other duties also deals with developing the military te technology, military industry. Um, and this has been shaped in large part by Prime Minister Nicole Pashinyan. So, um, mm -hmm. so these elements kind of coming together have been essentially um, sort of giving, facilitating the, the implementation of this doctrine. Right. So we, have, we see two things here. I mean, the constant skirmishes on the border, on the line of contact over the years actually made the Armenian uh, army more prepared. But at the same time, with this new doctrine, uh, we saw a combo uh, that manifested itself uh, in recent days. So how, what's your assessment in terms of both uh, those uh, uh, realities, let's call it? Um, if I understand your question correctly, I mean, we've what we saw just after the escalation, this re most recent escalation, which right. started on July 12th, um, Armenia took two military posts that, that belonged to Azerbaijan. So that's, that's unprecedented. And that's essentially, you know, what when I say we, we've been kind of seeing the Donoyan Doctrine in action. Is that, that confirmed, Farina? Is that confirmed, the two military posts? I haven't seen it officially confirmed, um, but mm -hmm. from sources in Armenia, that is what is okay. kind of assumed okay. to have happened. Okay. Okay. Um, that information, by the way, came out when um, the news came out that the major general, the Azerbaijani general, had been killed. So, so that news came to me at the same time. Um, but obviously, you know, I would obviously encourage people to wait for the official confirmation of that. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, um, and, you know, again, as far as the escalation, I mean, we still don't know how the fighting began. That's still unclear. Um, and I would refrain from speculating about, you know, who started it. But what is clear is that it wasn't a coordinated offensive operation that was planned ahead of time the way that the four-day war began. Um, so it seems that, you know, I mean, there was obviously a element of surprise when the Azerbaijani jeep happened upon the Armenian military post. Um, but from there, you know, it's we, we really don't know what happened right. after that. So it could have, you know, there, there is a possibility that there was a political rationale for escalating. On whose side, Karina? On the Azerbaijan side, I think. Okay. Yeah, I don't I don't see any strategic benefit for Armenia to to escalate especially, you know, on its international border. 
Well, they say at times of war, truth is the first casualty. So in terms of finding out who's go who started the conflict first and so on, it'll be a while uh, and it would be a lot of uh, hearsay. Um, now, moving on, uh, when you said the political the escalation was on the Azerbaijani side, uh, when we followed what was happening in Azerbaijan in terms of the Azerbaijani government sacking the foreign minister and yet... You know, people taking on the streets, funerals turning into protests, anti-Armenian chants, and so on. Um, what's your overall assessment about the Azerbaijani sort of uh, PR uh, sort of offenses, uh, if we can call? Yeah, them? that's a great question. And I think again, kind of going back to the to the you know how how much stock Azerbaijan puts into its international reputation um, in the international arena. Um, I think. It's possible to argue that Baku was to some extent succeeding in in pushing its version of the clashes, um, including the assertion that Armenia started it. Um, but three right. things subsequently happened that changed that narrative or at least undermined it. Um, the first is the threat of a missile strike on Armenia's Metzamor um, nuclear plant. Right. Um, the, the second is the rally that occurred in Baku on the 15th. So um, that's to three days after the, the hostilities began, uh, in which upwards of 10,000 people gathered, um, not just to chant Barabagazars, but also, you know, death to Armenians. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, just to essentially demand war. And this was, you know, as the kids say, not a good look, mm-hmm. um, especially for the side that's, that's essentially complaining about Armenia being the sole aggressor. Um, the third is the bombing of the PPP, PPE excuse me, um, factory in Tarlush. So again, you have the bombing of a medical mask-making factory that was making 300,000 masks a day in, in the middle of a pandemic. You know, again, it's just right. not a good look. Um, and, you know, it may well be that the factory wasn't sort of targeted on purpose, um, but it, it, it still happened, right? So um, it seems to me that those these Three things cost Baku a lot of, you know, this much desired international sort of approval. Um, it did undermine their arguments um, that Armenia is the sole aggressor. So I think mm-hmm. those those three things, you know, really kind of undermine that that narrative. Thank you, Karina. I think um, this was a quite informative and elucidating in terms of understanding where Armenia stands doctrinally, but also practically in practice, you know, putting that doctrine in action. Uh, I thank you for your time and uh, thank you for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. We're joined by our panelists, Aspet Kochikian, Emil Sanamian, Karen Vertanesian, and Alan Zamanian. We heard uh, Karina talk about the national security strategy in the previous segment. The publication of the NSD just before the border flare-up and at a time when Armenia has been articulating a more assertive military doctrine known as the deterrence doctrine, or in some circles, quote-unquote, Tonoyan doctrine. Azerbaijan may have been surprised at what appears to have been an aggressive counter-response by Armenia. Karen, are we seeing a resurgent, more assertive Armenia when it comes to war? If so, why now? Um, I think nothing has changed in the, from the point of view of, you know, being more probably aggressive or assertive, if you wish. Um, uh, the army is an institution that has been built uh, like since 1990s and uh, the, the process never stopped, uh, which is um, nature for, for the army of a country that's been in the state of war for the last 
let's say 30 years, almost 30 years. Uh, so I see that's quite normal, the reaction, be that in Tavush or elsewhere, because the fighting in Tavush wasn't the only one for the last two years. There were some artillery uh, shootings, uh, some mortar fire, etc., some smaller operations on Nakhchivani uh, frontier, uh, Nakhchivani frontier. So, I mean, I think it's everything like business as usual. In one of the follow-up interviews recently, Armin Grigorian, in explaining the new national strategy, took credit for the more assertive stance of Armenia, and, and I'm using his language, in, in, in military confrontation to, to, to the doctrine and obviously to the uh, political changes since then. But it seems like, Karen, you're, you're saying that this is uh, just a regular evolution of Armenia's uh, military uh, strategy. Um, what what mil military did uh, was business as usual. I mean, in Tavush and elsewhere. Uh, as for the uh, national security strategy, uh, I have lots of questions about this document. Uh, it doesn't look like a working strategy document, rather a set of, uh, you know, wishes or wishful thinking, if I may say. Um, I mean, just one probably, uh, Ironical example, what has uh, Armenian cuisine to do uh, in national strategy document, but it's there, like... Armenian cuisine, you mean? I mean it's, 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 yeah, it's very strange. <laughs> it, it, says, it's, it, it says that it's uh, natural, uh, national value. Armenian cuisine is a national value, <laughs> which is supposedly should be protected from whom, how. I mean, if someone gets a wrong recipe for Tolma, are we going to deploy, you know, military or what? I mean, it's on the third or fourth page of national strategy <laughs> document. Yeah, let me uh, let second, me say a couple of words about this. I mean, yeah. okay, yeah. Yeah, um... <laughs> I have no comments on this. The national security strategy, obviously, is a totally political thing. Uh, so the reason it's published is for the government to say that they have produced a national security strategy, because otherwise the opposition can come out and say, where is your strategy? You don't have a strategy. You don't even have a national security strategy. And in this case, after it's published, the, the government will say, what do you mean? We published like, uh, I don't know how many, 40 pages. Uh, you should go and read it. Uh, and the same case, this was the case before, you know, the previous national security strategy uh, uh, prepared uh, when uh, Haik Kutanjan was the head of a national uh, security uh, military affiliated uh, think tank. Uh, you know, it was prepared to show uh, that the government is serious about national security and sort of uh, is aware of uh, the security challenges countries facing and is aware of international security environment, uh, you know, at the time dominated still by counterterrorism. So uh, this is what it is. This is a document uh, that is, uh, you know, it's, I don't know, you want to call it a fig leaf or you want to call it, uh, uh, you know, uh, sort of a kind of a poster, uh, but uh, uh, that's what it is. 
rarely do national security strategies, and you know, United States government, other governments also produce national security strategies because if you don't have one, you know, your opposition will say, or oh, you're so not serious about national security that you don't even have a national security strategy. So they produce them. So that's the extent of it, of the national security strategy. It's, it's substantially divorced from day-to-day concerns and also substantially divorced from uh, likely future concerns, what you know, Donald Trump, Rumsfeld like to say, uh, the the known unknowns or the unknown unknowns, <laughs> you know, the next next threats that are happening. So just you know, you look at the national security mm-hmm. security strategy. Of the Donald United Rumsfeld, States. you mean? Yeah, didn't I say Donald Rumsfeld? You said Donald Trump, I think. Did I say that? <laughs> All right, yeah, Rumsfeld, of course. Uh, you look at the latest national security strategy. Unlikely that you know the bio bio uh, uh, hazards were number one threat, and uh, obviously now that's the total preoccupation of the United States government. So um, that's that's where we are with this national security strategy and the past national security strategy. It's it's a, it's a political document uh, intended to show that the government is serious about. National so yeah, I, I agree, but also I think that as a high level document, it warrants. A lot of uh, attention and scrutiny from all parties. So when I was reading the document, one salient point I noticed is that it seems that Armenia is making deliberate effort not to use the term Artsakh Republic or Nagorno-Karabakh Republic in the strategic document. And this is a marked difference from the 2007 version. In explaining this change, Armen Grigorian simply pointed to Pashinyan's speech in Artsakh on August 5, 2019. That was a speech... Um, where, among other things, uh, Pashinyan said, Artsakh is Armenia, and that's that. Critics argue that this move de-emphasizes the right of self-determination, one of the key positions held by Armenian sides throughout the last 30 years in negotiations. Emil, what are your thoughts on uh, this change in language? Well, I think um, there is a considerable support for uh, uh, sort of uh, formalizing Armenia-Artsakh reunification. Uh, we've over the past, uh, I mean, in Armenia and in Nagorno-Karabakh in Artsakh. Uh, so it's natural that the emphasis would go towards uh, uh, unification and sort of joint action rather than, you know, re- republic, uh, sort of some sort of ephemeral support for separateness uh, of Artsakh from Armenia. So that that kind of emphasis is, uh, I think, is normal. Uh, what I have not seen really, I mean, I expected much more uh, uh, sort of uh, move in the direction of uh, integration of uh, Artsakh into uh, Republic of Armenia, as promised by uh, Nikol Pashinyan before he was elected prime minister. You know, he said publicly that uh, Artsakh will finally become part of the Republic of Armenia, not just of Armenia, as it was already, uh, but of Republic of Armenia. Uh, but so far, we have not really seen uh, a move in that direction. Uh, and as if anything, um, there may be, uh, you could s- see some uh, steps back in that direction. Uh, you know, typically there would be uh, some kind of uh, uh, Artsakh uh, contingent in the Armenian parliament, for example. Right now, I think there's only one member of parliament. Uh, I think it's Hovanesi uh, Gitian who's born in Artsakh, and of course he's lived outside of Artsakh for most of his life, and is not part of sort of the Artsakh community, you could think of. Uh, and and uh, the, the more of a sort of con- con- concrete uh, uh, 
expression of uh, reunification would be to hold, uh, to bring in Ar Artsakh into uh, Armenia's electoral space and have the elections there for to, rep to have representatives from Artsakh in the Armenian parliament, just like was the case in the early 90s. Emil, uh, however, this is exactly the kind of momentous change that a strategy document would be predicting, correct? For example, the fact that uh, Pashinyan may be leading towards uh, one country that includes uh, Artsakh rather than um, two countries, two republics, is a momentous change in strategy. Uh, it it could be a momentous change in strategy, but I think it has to be uh, any change. At least that in negotiations. Has, uh, in negotiations, uh, yes and no, because uh, you know, for the past uh, what uh, how many years? Forever, uh, Armenia has been negotiating for Artsakh. Armenia has been representing Artsakh uh, and uh, has been security guarantor of Artsakh. So. Uh, that I don't think is a momentous change in that sense. Yes, there has been, uh, you know, there's a, a clearly a separate political system that exists in Artsakh and separate electoral process. Uh, but uh, I think it's, you know, in the long term, it has to be has to come into the political space of Armenia. And uh, you know, you can think of different uh, intermediate steps for that. <clears throat> but uh, you know, uh, one of them is the one I mentioned, and uh, there are others. Uh, but right now, other than uh, the political uh, Artsakh is integrated uh, totally with Armenia in terms of uh, you know economics and security. So uh, it's uh, it's a matter of time until uh, it's politically integrated. But you know those steps have to be taken, and uh, they're I think long, long overdue. And if anything, uh, you know in, initially you had uh, much more, <laughs> and when Armenia was still a Soviet republic, uh, there was much more of a readiness to elect, uh, for example. Uh, you know, Robert Kocharyan was elected uh, member of the Armenian Parliament, National Assembly, uh, Supreme Council, rather, I'm sorry, in 1990. And uh, some of the other uh, Artsakh Armenian leaders were elected members of Armenian Parliament. So it would be a natural expectation. Alan, uh, yeah, I'll, let me just ask you the question then next. So what's your take on what you've heard so far? What is the balance between the popular support for reunification, as was mentioned, versus a very uh, delicate legal strategy to support the self-determination of Artsakh which has been expressed in past referenda, for instance. Yeah, I think um, one important thing is that um, one important reason to keep uh, Armenia and Artsakh as two separate republics is uh, exactly that, uh, that, that this is a uh, struggle for self-determination for a uh, people living in an uh, independent republic. And... Um, and it's not a, a, a you know a territorial issue for Armenia. It's it, it's a specifically a self determination issue for for the people of Artsakh. And um, in 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 the steps that have been taken by this government in the past couple of years, and also in this uh, the the doctrine uh, that was recently published, it seems like the uh, status of Artsakh is just, is being lowered more and more. I mean, the first thing that Nikol Pashinyan said when he came to government was when he came to power was that um, Artsakh must part participate in the negotiations. Um, th that was kind of a, a vague statement. I mean, some a lot of people uh, commended him for it, but it wasn't clear how that was going to be accomplished, um, and also in what capacity Artsakh was going to participate in the negotiations. And in the past two years, I feel like a lot of this has uh, kind of crystallized. For one thing, um, the Artsakh is Armenia statement. For 
followed by several, uh, at least one instance when uh, the president of Artsakh was referred to as a governor, um, and uh, several mentions of uh, the Artsakh uh, representative the rep rather than the president of Artsakh again. Uh, overall, uh, just lowering the status of Artsakh. And in parallel, uh, we've seen sort of a seeming rise in the status of this uh, representative of the uh, Azerbaijani community of, 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 of Karabakh. And um, it seems like uh, it's, it's not clear what the format of uh, Artsakh's participation would be in, in the um, negotiations, but it's, it seems like these two entities are sort of being put on the same uh, platform, on the same um, level playing field. And, and that's problematic, I think, from a perspective of, of, of negotiations and, uh, like you said, um, the, uh, the legal uh, ramifications of that. Um, the other thing that I wanted to mention, oh, sorry, I, the other thing I wanted to mention about this is that um, having Artsakh as a separate entity uh, and having, uh, let's say, the Armenian um, uh, leadership negotiate, there's always that fallback mechanism, which is something that I've always heard that, you know, the Armenian side is negotiating and, you know, at, at some point there's always the, okay, we have to consult with our um, partners in Artsakh and we can't make a decision on our own and we've seen this kind of come up all over over the years um, and 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 unifying the two and saying there's only one front and we negotiate on behalf of Artsakh kind of takes away that that last like playing card that that we have and uh, tactically it seems problematic. Uh, Karen I wanted to get your thoughts on this as well. Uh, actually there uh, ha have been some concerns about the change of wording uh, in uh, in negotiations uh, the documents for example as was already mentioned the problem of um, elected representatives of Nagorno-Karabakh not the authorities of Nagorno-Karabakh but elected representative and uh, actually in, in a matter of months uh, the leader of uh, the so-called uh, Azerbaijani uh, community of Nagorno-Karabakh which is actually an NGO in Azerbaijan uh, with some people involved who has nothing who weren't born in uh, Karabakh who has nothing to do with Karabakh for example there's a ethnical Russian who, uh, who is now part of that NGO uh, but uh, the leader of that NGO became uh, elected to Milimajlis, the parliament of Azerbaijan and he now calls himself an elect, uh, elected representative of Nagorno-Karabakh he was elected uh, right from Karabakh uh, because uh, in, now in Azerbaijan they maintain all the administrative structure of what they imagine as the Karabakh. For example, they have uh, chief of the hospital of Shushi who gets who even uh, gets salary for that. Who is paid for being the doctor of hospital that doesn't exist. Uh, there are like uh, local. Uh, local authorities for different regions of Karabakh, etc. So now the guy uh, presents himself as uh, an elected representative of Nagorno-Karabakh. He meets 
uh, ambassadors. He meets ambassadors of Minsk uh, group countries. Uh, he already uh, had meetings with, uh, with ambassador of France, with uh, Minsk, uh, Minsk group co-chairs, etc., etc. Uh, so, I mean, they are trying to add more weight to that structure and to present that structure as something equal to authorities of Arbach, which has been democratically elected. Okay, we have very little time. Does anyone want to, like, shout out last-minute comments and we can close it? Hovik, the document, this is Asbet Bedrosian, the document comes across more like a value statement than a strategy document. To me, uh, it talks, for example, about religion. It talks about uh, language, even cuisine. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily specify which recipe we should be using, but uh, it doesn't also tell us enough about how we are going to be achieving some of the ahead of us. For example, it leaves a lot fuzzy as far as strategies about the projects and initiatives that need to be taken. It doesn't give them a framework and therefore leaves a lot towards the tactics of any kind of current government going forward. And I would be for that kind of a framework from a strategy successful. Okay, well, thank you everyone for joining. It was a nice discussion. Thank you. Thank you, guys. And that concludes Groom Weekend Review. Thanks for listening to us and we'd appreciate your feedback. You can contact us on the web at groom.org or our Facebook page by searching for ANN Groom. That's G-R-O-O-N-G.